If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 1 Timothy this evening, 1 Timothy chapter 3. And as you're turning there, our book of church order says in chapter 24 that for such an occasion, a sermon shall be preached, after which the presiding minister shall state in a concise manner the warrant and nature of the office of ruling elder or deacon, together with the character proper to be sustained and the duties to be fulfilled. And if that statement doesn't just warm your heart with pious Presbyterian zeal, I don't know what will. But given the occasion tonight, 1 Timothy 3 does indeed seem a most suitable text for our occasion. And we are giving God thanks for his watch care and his love and his provision toward our congregation and toward our daughter congregation at Christ Church Presbyterian. So we've got a lot going on tonight, and we'll barely scratch the surface as we look at this text. But first, let's read God's word, and then we'll ask for his help and blessing as we study it. 1 Timothy 3, I'll be reading verses 1 through 13. This is God's holy word. Hear it. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle. Not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Amen. Thus far, God's holy and inerrant and inspired word to us tonight. May he be pleased to write its eternal truth on all of our hearts. Would you pray with me? Lord God, truly, thank you for your word. Help us now as we read it, as we have read it, as we study it this night. We ask that you'd come, Holy Spirit, God the Lord, and grant us your illumination and grant us understanding as we give ourselves over to these things, that we, like Mary, would ponder these things in our heart and treasure them always, and that you would seal these things to our hearts for your glory and our everlasting good. And it's for Jesus' sake that we do ask it. Amen. Well, back in Ephesians chapter 4, if you're familiar with that passage or if you remember it from when we were studying it together over the summer and on into the fall, Ephesians 4, verses 11 and 12, you remember how Paul says that when the Lord Jesus ascended on high, he gave gifts to men. He poured out, and he is pouring out gifts upon his church. And Paul makes it clear that Jesus gave officers to the church. Now, when the Lord Jesus gives you a gift, you need it. King Jesus does not give unnecessary gifts. And if he gave 
the gift of officers or office bearers to his church, then he must think that truly his church needs officers. And so I want to think about two major things from this passage, very simply, based on the text we just read. First, what God wants in elders. And then secondly, what God wants in deacons. What God wants in elders and what God wants in deacons. So let's look over these things and consider them and study them together for a few minutes this evening. The first qualification regarding what God wants in elders, you'll see there in verse 1 of chapter 3, godly desire. Godly desire. Paul says, it is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. Or, your translation might say, he desires a noble task. Now, different Greek words, but presbyteros, which means elder, from which we get the word presbyterian. Presbyteros versus episkopos, which means overseers. And that's the word that Paul uses here. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer. But of course, when he says that, he means the same thing as elders. For example, Peter, the apostle in 1 Peter chapter 5, he calls himself an elder, and he exhorts his fellow elders to exercise oversight over the flock. And the verb there that he uses for exercise oversight is the same root as the word here for overseer in 1 Timothy 3. I won't go into a long discourse there, but trust us when we say elders are spiritual overseers. Elder is indeed a venerable title, with ancient origins dating back all the way from Moses. But do note, Paul's concern is not that a man would desire a status of authority and reputation and prestige or prominence, but rather that he would desire a work. A work. Paul is saying that the first qualification of the eldership is that a man would desire to do the spiritual work of a shepherd in the church. Not that he would desire to be merely esteemed, you see. And to be, no, no question about it, to be an elder is a high calling. It is a serious, weighty thing. But the thing that Paul wants is not a man to aspire to the honor or the recognition. Paul doesn't want people to seek to be an elder because it makes them look smart or powerful or because they like the attention or because they like being in charge. What terrible motivations to serve as an elder. And I dare say many of us know of instances, know of situations in congregations where there have been men nominated or who have aspired to such a task merely for those kinds of reasons. That's not what Paul is after, is he? He wants men who are burning, not with the desire to be recognized or to be large and in charge, but rather with men who are desiring, burning with the desire to shepherd the people of God. He wants men who want to be pastors, if we can put it that way. All elders are pastors, not just preachers, not just full-time vocational ministers, but all your elders are pastors and shepherds of the flock. Yes, yes, they have to make hard decisions about budgets and buildings. That's part of the job. But what they really love to do is to shepherd the souls of men and women and boys and girls. You can see that in the way that a man commits himself to the life of a local congregation on the Lord's Day and at other times, of course. That is their great and overwhelming desire, to be a shepherd for the people of God. So there's the first qualification. He desires a noble work, a godly desire is what an elder must have. The second thing there is character. He has godly character. Look at verses 2 and 3. An overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, Respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, 
peaceable, free from the love of money. Paul expects elders to be in a lifelong pursuit of holiness. Now, sometimes we might wonder, all right, what does holiness look like? If if, if an elder is supposed to be in a lifelong pursuit of holiness, what should his lifelong pursuit of holiness look like exactly? Does holiness mean reading your Bible all day long, not going to work because you're too busy praying 24-7? No. No, Paul gives you a very practical description of holiness, does he not? Here's a holy man. He's one who's free from scandalous sin that would warrant public criticism. He's the husband of one wife. That is very simple and sincere marital fidelity if he's married. He is a sober-minded man, or he's temperate, as your translation might render it. That is, he's emotionally stable. He's level-headed. And related to that, he's also prudent. He's got some self-control when people say or do silly things that might offend him. He's respectable. He's hospitable. All Christians are called to hospitality in one sense, but elders are called to take a lead in that. He's not addicted to much wine. That is, he's able to enjoy it in moderation and not be a drunkard. And related to temperate, he's not pugnacious. He's not given to quarreling. Goodness knows, in the life of the church, when you're dealing with spiritual matters, and you're dealing with sinners, and we're all sinners, our pride and our ego can so often get in the way, and sometimes, just once in a while... We say or do things that can really, frankly, irritate each other. And so you need to be able to be a man, an elder needs to be able to be a man who can handle that and gently instruct and gently rebuke and gently correct. And Paul will go on to say more of that later on. And he's free from the love of money. Money doesn't rule him. Money doesn't dominate him. Money does not, it's not the thing that gives the direction and thrust of the course of his life and decision and and. And basis of decision on any given day of the week. One man put it like this. He doesn't love things and use God. No, rather he loves God and therefore uses things. He loves God and therefore uses things for the advancement of God's glory and for prudence and wisdom and exercising the affairs of his life as God in his providence has given him. And that's it. That's holiness. Very simple. I'm keen to remind folks that essentially this is basic level Christian godliness that frankly all men should aspire to. This isn't exactly super level piety. This is simple, practicable holiness. Paul says look for that in a man. Look for that level of godliness in a man. Those kind of godly characteristics in a man. And you'll see the qualifications for an elder. So that's the second thing that we see there. First, godly desire. But then secondly, godly character. Thirdly, godly ability godly ability. An overseer must be, beginning of verse 2, an overseer must be, and he goes off and gives these various uh, qualifications, and then last phrase of verse 2, able to teach, able to teach, or apt to teach, your translation might say. Do notice Paul singles out only one ability for an elder. He must be able to teach. Now isn't that interesting? Paul has a lot more to say about character about godliness. But when it comes to competencies or skill sets, he lists only one thing. He should be able to teach. Not have corporate level leadership skills, not even be a world class communicator like the the world's greatest university professor. No, no, Paul doesn't say that. Paul says, very humbly, able. He should be able. That's the biblical requirement for an elder in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Simple. He should have a basic ability to teach, to disciple, 
to cogently instruct others in the things of God. Not every elder is great behind a pulpit. Not everyone needs to be. The question is, is he able at a basic level to disciple the people of God in sound doctrine and sound living? And you know, given the amount of scandals and fallout and frankly embarrassing and and dreadful situations that we've seen in the church in the recent years, we can all think of scandalous situations. We don't need to rehearse them right now. We can all think of them. One wonders if we have not gotten a disproportionate emphasis on the aptness at the expense of the godliness when Scripture seems to do the reverse, it puts the disproportionate emphasis on the godliness and a minor emphasis on the skills or the ability or the communication level, the, the wondrous ability of the teaching aspect. Have we emphasized in some corners of Christianity world-class, marvelous communicators at the expense of godliness when Paul would have us do the reverse? Something to ponder, something that we can pray about. But that's the third thing for us to see. Godly desire godly character, godly ability. Fourthly, godly homes or godly families, if you like. Look at verses 4 and 5. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity, parentheses, but if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? The point is this. Paul says, look at how a man shepherds the souls of his wife and children. Godliness in the church, godliness in the congregation must begin and will begin with godliness in the home. How's his prayer life? How's his family worship? How's his family's commitment to the church? Because that pattern of piety in the home will translate to the pattern he'll seek to inculcate in the congregation. So that's the fourth thing that we must see. The Lord God, King Jesus, wants elders with godly homes and godly families. We thought about this, that this morning a little bit, did we not? From Psalm 127, as we think about godliness in the home, and children, heritage from the Lord. That's the fourth thing. But then look at verse 6. Elders must be mature in the faith, or, just to keep on with our alliterative outline here, godly conduct. Godly conduct. That's the fifth qualification that Paul spells out. Paul says that he must not be a new convert, not be a recent convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation occurred, incurred rather, by the devil. Now, Paul doesn't give a specific age limit. Now, many times, at least in our denomination, in the PCA, we ordain teaching elders fresh out of seminary, and they are men, young men in their early to mid-twenties. That was certainly my case when I was newly ordained, and that's fine, so long as they are godly. And Paul says, look, when you choose an elder... Make sure he's spiritually mature. You shouldn't choose someone who is just converted, no matter how passionate he seems, no matter how great his zeal is, no matter how enthusiastic he is for the things of the Lord. Prudence and discretion and caution is wise. You know, and this is related to what we were thinking about just a moment ago. We've seen it over the last 15 years or so. Maybe not in our particular denomination, but certainly in American evangelicalism writ large. And we still haven't learned our lesson. How often we see a high-profile celebrity become a Christian, whether he's a, a movie actor or a professional athlete, whatever. They become a Christian, and we're so glad, we are so glad when they do confess Christ. Of course we are. But what does the evangelical culture do right away? Put him up on a stage. 
Send them around the country. Put them on TV. Send them to the churches telling about their faith and their faith journey. And how many times, whether it's a matter of months or years, how many times we see it where they fall into gross immorality, invite scandal upon their lives, invite scandal upon the church of the Lord Jesus, and sometimes they even go so far as to renounce and denounce the faith. Paul, the apostle, says, don't do that. Don't take someone who has just converted and make them a teacher of the people of God. Don't. All these qualifications here in verses 2 and 3, you have to know somebody for a while before you can tell whether these qualifications are there. These qualities are cultivated. We're not born natively with them. We need spiritual maturity in those who are to be the shepherds of the church. That's verse 6. Godly conduct. And then sixthly, and finally, if you look at verse 7, there's that sixth qualification, and that is godly reputation. Godly reputation. God wants elders whose moral reputation is good with even our non-Christian neighbors. Now, isn't it interesting that Paul would say that, that these elders who are going to be shepherds of the church, you've got to display that kind of moral reputation that, I've, that he's just been expounding on here, and that you need to display it even to the pagans around you. Even to the pagans around you. They may not like you. And Paul certainly had plenty of pagans who didn't like him. But even those pagans can't say anything truthfully, truthfully, to undermine your public reputation. Godly character, he says, even with unbelievers. Paul says the elders of the church ought to be like that. Isn't it, isn't it a kindness of God? In, and we live in this world, we see it all the time, in a world that wants to dismiss the church because of her hypocrisy. Don't you hear that all the time, whether it's in conversations with your neighbors or you see it in online comments or things like that on social media? I don't want to be part of the church because it's full of hypocrites. But isn't it a kindness that in the face of those allegations of hypocrisy, some of which stick, some of which stick, that one of the gifts that Jesus pours out on his church is officers, elders, Men like this. One man put it like this. This is a love of Jesus Christ toward you, church. Because he's giving you men who meet these qualifications. And so because of that, the world cannot just dismiss us, not with any honest integrity. Sometimes the world looks at the church and says, you know, you Christians talk a big game. You're no different than me. Why should I listen to you? And the Lord Jesus comes along and says, you know what, I'm going to put elders in your life, who walk in a godly way. So that when the world accuses us of hypocrisy, these men will say, we're sinners too, yes. But though we are great sinners, we have a great Savior, and he has changed us. Let me tell you. Let me tell you what he's done to this wicked heart. And that Savior is worth listening to. What a kindness. What a kindness also, even as we're thinking of children as our heritage, that God, the Lord Jesus in his kindness, has given us elders to model godliness so that ideally you can look to the elders within our congregation. You can point your children, point your boys and girls to them and say, son, daughter, when you grow up to be a Christian, what does godliness look like? What does simple faithfulness look like? What does simple maturity in the faith look like? It looks like that. Be like those men. Here are built-in role models for the life of our covenant children to look to as they grow, as we rear them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. What a kindness, what a love of King Jesus to give us elders such as this. But we must move on. There's also a second 
section here. Not only what God wants, what God desires in elders, but what God wants in deacons. And the first thing we need to think about as we look at the qualifications that he lays out here for the diaconate is what deacons do. What deacons do. You see, for Paul, the deacon, his, his job description, if we can put it that way, is that of a man who wants to concretely and tangibly show the love of Christ in the body of Christ. That is, in a word, he wants to serve. The office of deacon is emphatically an office of service, and our book of church order makes that abundantly clear, not just in some generic sense, but really and specifically. The deacon is not out for power or prestige. He is a man who wants to serve. He wants to make Christian love tangible, to express it in a hands-on, tangible manner. You remember the origins of this office? Acts 6, the Greek-speaking Jewish widows were being neglected and the Hebrew-speaking widows were being cared for. So the apostles appointed a new cadre of officers to make sure that correct service, correct ministry was happening. Let them serve as deacons, Paul says in verse 10. Or on in, for those who serve well as deacons, he says there in verse 13. Very often, men are elected to the diaconate who are never elected elders. And that's okay. The two offices are distinct. And some men are given the gifts for one office, and some are called to the other office. And we want men in the diaconate who exude that kind of desire to serve the flock. They love serving the Lord's people in time of need. This is where calling that the Lord has placed upon them. And Paul says this is what deacons do, a desire to serve. That's what God wants in deacons. So that's the first thing, what deacons do. But then secondly, within this second larger point, what deacons are, or another way of saying, what qualities should they have? What qualities should they have? What's their qualification for office? If what they do is service, what should they be in their manner of life? Well, you see it there in verses 8, 9, and 10, and also in verses 12 and 13. Deacons must likewise be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men also must be first tested, and then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. They must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and of their own households. Now notice, just like what we saw a few moments ago with the elders, Paul's list of qualifications is primarily moral. The biggest component that Paul spends time expounding surrounds issues of godliness, not skill sets. How good is he at Excel spreadsheets? How good is he at fixing toilets? No, they have to have the desire to serve, yes, and they have to have the godly character of a man who is going to faithfully minister in the Lord's church. Now, notice there are several parallels between the deacons and the elders. For one thing, deacons, just like elders, are asked to be good family spiritual leaders. It's vital that if they're going to spiritually serve the congregation, that they know how to spiritually serve their own families. You see that in verses 11 and 12. But also notice verse 10. It, Paul says this, Let these also first be tested. Now that also is important because it indicates that the elders are to be tested first. Let also these, let these deacons also be tested, implying that the elders be tested. And that's exactly what we do in the PCA. You ever wonder why we have such an extensive time of officer training before we put a man to a vote? We do that because of 1 Timothy 3.10 
It's not because we think so highly of our own intellect. It's not because we love to hear ourselves talk. Far be it. No. It says that these men are also to be tested before they are set apart for this particular work. And so the men whom you have nominated have spent hours and hours and hours, particularly under the careful tutelage and instruction, yes, of all your elders, but particularly Pastor Wilborn. But all of your elders have been very careful in their screening, in their evaluation, in the questions that they've asked, in the prayers that we have offered on behalf of these men, so that you are able to choose from men when you voted in our congregational meeting a number of weeks ago, you are able to choose from men who meet these qualifications. Notice also that the deacon is to have self-control in speech, verse 8. Now think of how important that is. A deacon, in doing his work, and doing his ministry, he's going to find out things about the life of families in the church that could be hurtful to them and could potentially be divisive to the fellowship if he were to have loose lips. And so he has to be a man of discretion, who's trustworthy, not double-tongued, but self-controlled over his mouth. And likewise, he needs to have self-control in the area of drink, just like with the elders. If a man doesn't have self-control with addictive things in one area of his life, well, that's not going to inspire a lot of confidence in other areas, like when he's trusted with money or funds for mercy ministry and needing to exercise control in that. Right along with that, he is not greedy for dishonest gain, verse 8. He's got self-control in the area of money. He's a faithful steward. What's a steward? A trustworthy man who's going to be entrusted with important and sensitive mercy and service tasks on behalf of the life of the congregation. A faithful steward. But deacons are to basically have three qualifications. They desire to serve, they are theologically sound, and they have godly moral character. Very quickly, if you see there in verse 8, you see the expectations of, a god, of godly moral character. We've already seen that they must have that desire to serve there in verse 10 and verse 13. But then verse 9, they should hold to the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. Now, isn't that interesting? Elders are required to be able to teach. Now, deacons are not required to be able to teach necessarily, but they are required to hold to historic, faithful, biblical Christian orthodoxy and to do so with a clear conscience. Even if they are not congregational teachers the way the elders are, they need to be biblically and theologically sound. God wants mercy to be tangibly ministered by people who really, truly love and believe his word. Now, what a contrast that is to what we so often hear these days. Right? You'll, 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 you'll so often hear people say, you know, I, I'm not so concerned about doctrine and theology we just need to be focused on deeds of love and mercy and, and things of justice. Well, here in 1 Timothy 3, God, through the mouth, through the pen of the Apostle Paul, is saying that the people who ought to be most concerned with deeds of love and mercy and justice must also be those who are the most theologically committed. You'll hear me say it so many times, you might get sick of it, but once again, it's not an either or, it's a both and. Do you want people who are committed to deeds of service and love and mercy, or do you want people who are theologically sound? The answer is yes. And God in his kindness has given that to us in the standards that he's given in qualifications for deacons. And like the elders, Paul wants them to be men of godly character, men of dignity, husbands of one wife, good managers, managers of their children and household. Again, this pattern is to point to fundamental godliness as a qualification for the office of deacon. 
So who they are, what they do, but then finally, if you look at verse 13, Paul tells us what deacons get. What deacons get as they labor faithfully. What's, what's their reward? Those, he says, who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and a great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying that those who serve in this often quiet, behind-the-scenes work of deacons, they will be rewarded with high standing. Serving, as we might all expect, isn't often glamorous, and it's not often esteemed by the world, but Paul says that such servants, these deacons, these ministers of mercy, will hear the well-done, good, and faithful servant from the mouth of their master. The deacon leads by example, but also by concrete, tangible action. By concrete, tangible action, they enact, they put to life, if you like, Jesus' instruction from John 13. Remember what it says. The world will know that we are God's disciples by how we love one another. And so the work of the deacon, just like the work of the elder, is vital for the evangelistic witness of the church. Tangible deeds of love, expressions of Christian charity and graciousness and kindness and service are essential to our gospel witness, and the diaconate gives life to that expression in the congregation. You remember Jesus said that no one would give a cup of cold water to one of his disciples in his name, and that such a name would not be forgotten. And the deacons are doing precisely that. And as they do, as they labor, they get that reward, they get the smile of their master. And brothers, those of you who are taking vows this evening, this is your high calling to serve the church, to guard the church, and in your lives and conduct to protect the church's public witness. There are days where the task before us seems absolutely insurmountable, hard and even grievous days, perhaps. And you're going to want to cry out, how are we ever supposed to do it? Who is sufficient for these things? And that leads us to our third and final thing that we need to see here ever so briefly, and that is Christ Jesus, the elder and deacon par excellence. You know, when we come to a text like this, it's important that we not only expound through the list of characteristics and the list of competencies for our officers, but we must also terminate on and look to and rest on Christ Jesus as we do so. Because as our elders exercise their rule, their oversight, their care, their shepherding, what they're really doing is imitating Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. They are his under-shepherds, looking to him as the model for what it means to care for the flock. And likewise for our deacons. The diaconate is the ecclesiastical office that most closely resembles the servanthood of Jesus Christ. In fact, as I alluded to earlier, Jesus sometimes used the word deacon, the Greek there, diakonos, to describe his own ministry. Hear this from, from Mark chapter 10, verse 45. You know this verse well. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The word Jesus uses there for serve, it comes from the same root as diakonos, deacon. He he came to, to deacon is the verb employed there. But brothers and sisters, your elders and deacons are mere men. They are mere mortals. They will fail at times. They will struggle at times. They will do things imperfectly. Who is sufficient for these things? The truth is, you're not, brothers. I'm not. But Christ is sufficient, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 
His grace is sufficient for you, 2 Corinthians 12. And ultimately, this congregation, his church, it's not in my hands, it's not in the session's hands, it's not in the diaconate's hands, but it's in his almighty hands and under his sovereign watch care. Did you notice, if you were letting your eyeballs scan a little further on into 1 Timothy chapter 3, that this is not a, just a positive rhetorical note for a sermon to end on because it leaves us on an up note, but rather this is Paul's own trajectory right here in the text. If we had more time, we would go further into it, but just notice how in chapter 3 he moves almost seamlessly from expounding the qualifications for officers to there in verse 16 where he casts the eyes of his audience to Christ himself. And as he quotes there what is likely an early church creed, an affirmation of faith, Here's your qualifications for elders. Here's your qualifications for deacons. Praise the risen Lord Jesus Christ, the King and Head of His church. That's the thrust of 1 Timothy 3. This congregation will not be kept ultimately because we have godly elders or gifted deacons. Not ultimately. But because we have a glorious Christ. A King and Head of His church who is true to His word and pours out His graces upon His people and shepherds his beloved bride in his own tender care. You can have great confidence, brethren, and you can rest well tonight, those of you who are serving and preparing to take these vows of of the officership. You can have great confidence, and you can rest well tonight and every night when we put our heads down on the pillow, having strived to fulfill our duties faithfully, because we are kept not by great office bearers, but by a great and good and gracious Lord. We own our weaknesses. We admit them. And strong in my strength? No, no. Strong in his strength we press on because it is his absolute delight to pour out his gifts and his graces upon his church. Praise God for his holy word and its ministry to us tonight. Would you pray with me? Oh, indeed, how we do praise you, King Jesus, because you are, you are, even now, pouring out gifts upon your church. You are pouring out graces. These men coming to serve as elders and deacons, even this very day, it is a tangible evidence that you are continuing to build and bless and sustain and nourish your church. So thank you. And bless these men and bless your word to the good of our souls this night and truly, everlastingly. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.